Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. Hope everyone is having a wonderful week so far. Today we're going to talk about that uncomfortable topic that seems to kind of dominate our news cycle or social media feeds, and that is the topic of race and racism. But we're specifically talking about these subjects in regards to the Derek Chauvin trial, which is now underway. You guys probably know Derek Chauvin was the Minneapolis police officer who was shown on camera last year with his knee on the back of George Floyd's neck before George Floyd died. So we are going to talk about the charges against Derek, what the media are saying, what's likely to happen, uh, what we should want to happen as people who both uh, love truth and justice. We will talk about what the truth is in regards to not just this case, but also in regards to claims of systemic racism in the police force in the United States and why clarity on all of that matters. So there are a lot of details about this case and, well, about this trial that's going on right now that we're not going to be able to get into. This is ongoing, and so details are always emerging, different testimonies, the arguments from both sides are uh, being aired, and so there's a lot of commentary on that. Um, But because... There's no possible way for us to um, be following along and have the most up-to-date details for you while we are recording this. Um, And, you know, it takes a couple hours for this to come out. We're not going to get into everything that's happening moment by moment. I just want to give you kind of an overview, an analysis of what's going on and try to try to get a good understanding two of the context in which this is happening, at least as much as we can. This is something that we've been talking about a lot for the past year, and it's going to continue to be talked about no matter how the trial ends up. And so we want to make sure that we are as informed as possible. So uh, let us talk about what led to this. Just remind us what happened and what's going on in this trial. So Um, According to an article uh, by Fox News, Derek Chauvin trial, what to know about George Floyd autopsies, criminal complaint jurors and more. So as you know, George Floyd died 10 months ago in Minneapolis. Uh, The article says a video recorded by a bystander showing the white officer with his knee pressed to the back of the black man's neck for nearly nine minutes, ignoring his pleas that he couldn't breathe, will likely serve as a focal point for prosecutors in this case. Chauvin, 45, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, by the way, I'm not sure. 45 is charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter in connection to 46-year-old Floyd's death on May 25th, 2020. In the video recorded in front of Cup Foods, Floyd could be heard pleading for his mother and saying he couldn't breathe. This Chauvin pressed his knee into the back of his neck. Onlookers repeatedly shouted at Chauvin to get off, asked him to check for a pulse, and warned that Floyd no longer seemed to be breathing. Three other officers involved, Thomas Lane, J.A. Kung, and Tao Thao, uh, were each charged with two counts of aiding and abetting and second-degree murder. They are expected to stand trial together later this year in August. Um, So to give us a little bit more context about what went on, and maybe these are some details that you didn't know. Sometimes it takes several weeks or several months for us to really understand what happened in an incident like this. Uh, Here are some details from the criminal complaints. 
So two officers, the two officers of the three that I listed in addition to Chauvin responded uh, to a 911 call around 8.08 p.m. about a man who allegedly brought mer- bought merchandise from a corner market with a counterfeit $20 bill. Court papers show Floyd was in the driver's seat of a vehicle parked around the corner. When the officers arrive, body camera footage shows Lane, that's one of the officers, pointing his gun at the open driver's side window and ordering Floyd to put his hands on the steering wheel before holstering his gun. Lane then orders Floyd out of the vehicle and ends up pulling him out of the car. The officer handcuffs Floyd, who actively resisted, according to the criminal complaint filed in the case. Once handcuffed, Floyd became compliant. He uh, he walked uh, with the officer Lane to the sidewalk, sat on the ground, um, and then they did the you know the normal police stuff, asking. Uh, for his name and asking for his identification and information. And then they stood Floyd up. They attempted to walk him to their squad car. But at 8.14 p.m., Floyd stiffened. He fell to the ground. He told the officers he was claustrophobic. Um, Chauvin and Tao or Chauvin and Tao arrived in a separate police car. So I guess they called for help. They felt like, okay, we can't get this guy. He's over six feet tall. He weighs more than 200 pounds. This report says we can't get him to get into the squad car. Uh, reports say that they also said, Hey, we'll, you know, we'll lower the, the windows for you, but you got to get in the squad car. And apparently, um, George Floyd was saying, I'm claustrophobic. I don't want to get in the squad car. And so they called for, Back up. They continued to make attempts to get him in the backseat of the squad car, tried to get him to comply. Uh, Chauvin went to the passenger side, tried to get Floyd into the car from that side. And then when Floyd went to the ground face down while still handcuffed, that is when Floyd or that is when Chauvin apparently put his knee on the back of Floyd's neck. And that is when Floyd was saying, I can't breathe and saying mama and saying, please. And that's when the onlookers were saying, hey, like, get your knee off of his neck. He, he obviously can't breathe. Stop, you know, treating him in this way. You're going to kill him. Um, an ambulance arrives and medics place Floyd on a gurney and take him to Hennepin County Medical Center where he was pronounced dead. Now, an EMT did testify in court. I think it was either this morning or it was yesterday. And she alleges that she wasn't able to get to Floyd as quickly as she wanted to and was able to. She says that the police officers actually inhibited her from giving Floyd the immediate help that he needed. So the full footage of the incident shows incongruence with the criminal complaint that there was a lot that went down before that viral video of Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. He was allegedly resisting arrest. And from what we can see, the police officers were trying to convince him for a very long time to get in the car. He didn't want to. He dropped to the ground. And then that's where we have the viral footage. And that is not me justifying anything or trying to explain away anything. That's just what the context of the clip, of the full clip, shows us. Um, Now, I saw this clip on Twitter last year before this became a national moment, before it became a conversation, certainly before it became a movement. And I had the same reaction that most people did, that, oh my gosh, what is happening? This is not okay. To see a guy with handcuffs behind his back and a police officer kneeling on his neck, it's just it's unsettling. It's disturbing. There's just something about that image that sticks with you, that sears you, that breaks your heart. And just disregarding everything else for just a second, 
all of the politics, everything that happened after, all the details that came out before and after this incident, I think it is good for us to pause and to just like let ourselves feel that. Rather than resisting feelings of sadness, we may have felt when seeing that video because maybe we didn't want to uh, be too quick to criticize the police officer or we don't want to perpetuate a narrative about police brutality. Uh, I would say that it's okay and even preferable to just let ourselves feel sadness when we see a person seemingly desperate and obviously very uncomfortable being pinned to the cement. Now, the left and the right both do this. People will immediately harden their hearts when it comes to, for example, the brutality of abortion or when it comes to victims of crimes not committed by police officers and white people. Or for conservatives, we'll see conservatives kind of um, harden their hearts about the plight of migrants or the victims of unjustified uh, police force because we're afraid that feelings of sympathy may validate the argument of our opponent. And in this polarized world, that is the last thing that we want. And I understand, I'm not justifying, but I understand that propensity toward callousness and I see how and why it happens on the right in particular because I'm on the right. So I'm watching these kinds of stories unfold from that vantage point. What happens is something like the George Floyd incident occurs and pretty much everyone agrees immediately, wow, that's bad. Like that doesn't look good. I don't think people should be treated like that. Hard to understand how there may be a justification for that kind of behavior. So everyone's kind of on the same page. Everyone's kind of on board. And then immediately we see the media and left-wing activists go beyond yeah, wow, that's that's bad. And human beings should be treated better too. In a matter of seconds, it seems, see, this is evidence of systemic racism uh, and white supremacy and the police force and in society. And George Floyd was a saint whom we should dedicate murals and streets and protests and riots to as we seek to dismantle the unjust systems and defund the police that allow something like this to happen every single day. And then people on the right are like, whoa, 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 we we don't even have a chance, it seems like, to keep up. We feel like we've got to defend the nature of progressivism as a general rule. And I'm not saying all progressives, but as an ideology is that every tragedy is an opportunity. So many times leftist activists and journalists will immediately go from centering the humanity of victims to centering their uh, political cause or their political narrative. And the only people who will push back against that narrative is conservatives. Now, I'm not saying that conservatives don't do the same thing when a crime is committed by an illegal immigrant or something like that. But because all of the cultural and political megaphones are uh, dominated by the leftist ideology, we see this in particular when it comes to progressivism the decentering of what actually happened, the decentering of the truth, the decentering of the victims and of the people involved, and the recentering, or I guess just the centering of some sort of political narrative. Um, the tragedies are used in a very exploitative way, I would say, in order to try to push a particular point. And that is when people on the right get extremely defensive and say, hang on just a second. Like, we agree with you. This doesn't look good. We agree with you. This looks like injustice. This looks like abuse. This looks like murder. 
but we're jumping to all these other conclusions and we're just not ready to go there yet because we don't have the facts. And then when conservatives do push back, we're accused of not being compassionate. Like we're accused of the one of, of being the ones who are not empathetic or nuanced or being too political. When in these cases, it's actually not conservatives who first politicized and racialized what happened to George Floyd or for another example, their horrific shooting in Atlanta a couple weeks ago. So apparently, like the message that we get is that we just have to agree with whatever the progressive mainstream says is the cause of something in order to be regarded as empathetic. And so speaking for the conservative side, what so often happens is that we feel like we have to skip the compassion and go straight into the defense or else there is nothing and no one to stop sometimes uh, the sometimes false narratives that surround these tragic events because our media and our social media are dominated by one political and ideological side and a narrative just takes off like wildfire. And if conservatives don't slow it down, we feel like it's just going to wreck the conversation about the incident or about the event that happens. Now, all that to say, I think conservatives, while absolutely speaking truth and speaking against false narratives, must not neglect compassion and look past humanity for the sake of anxiously tearing down left-wing arguments and assertions. If the other side wants to do that, like if they want to immediately decenter humanity, if they want to forget about the victims, if they just want to push a political agenda immediately, they can do that. But I think we need to ha- need to have, especially as Christians, a little patience when it comes to our reaction so we can kind of sit in the sadness and let ourselves feel what should be felt and pray what needs to be prayed before jumping into the arena. I don't think that we have to avoid jumping into the arena because the truth absolutely matters, but I think we need a little bit more hesitance before forgetting about the bodies who aren't even cold yet when it comes to situations like this. The immediacy uh, that it seems social media demands of us to make these statements, to offer hot takes, to give analysis, has a way of hardening our hearts to the reality that what we're talking about in these situations are people, like real people made in God's image with value who had plans and families and friends. Their lives matter beyond what we want them to represent or debunk when it comes to our political causes. Now, I am absolutely guilty of this. Lord, help me. It's something that I certainly see on the conservative side. I also see it on the other side of the aisle all the time is they turn a blind eye to the kinds of crime that don't fit into their narrative or the brutality of of killing and dismembering babies in the womb. And I just pray that God would make all of our hearts, those of us who identify as Christians, make all of our hearts soft to the things that demand our gentleness and care right away and let us uh, allow ourselves to sit in it before the news and social media hashtags and viral posts make us callous and uncaring. And also may that love and sympathy and sadness that we feel for victims, for these people, these image bearers involved, for the people at the center of our political controversies, motivate us to seek out and understand that which is actually true. Not what the popular narrative is, not what the headlines say, not what we want to be true, but what is actually true. 
Because one thing I know for sure is that empathy plus deceit does not equal love. Uh, It is not loving to lie. It is not loving or wise to latch on to political narratives because it's popular and comfortable to do so. And when it comes to something as disturbing as the George Floyd incident, the heartache that we feel, and I believe we should feel when we watch that video, should not motivate us to respond publicly with sheer emotion and without truth, but rather should give us the desire to really know what happened. Why did this happen? Is this a pattern? What's the context of this, both there in that situation and in a larger sense in the, in the country? We're seeing claims of white supremacy, anti-Black racism in the police force. Is that true based on the information and the data that we have? And that's the question that we're always dealing with and should be dealing with. Is this true? And what is true? And it's that question that must be dealt with when it comes to this Derek Chauvin trial. Justice being done in this case does not mean that Black Lives Matter activists get what they want necessarily. It's not about making a statement about systemic racism. It's not about righting historic wrongs. It's not about what we feel should happen or what we strongly believe the outcome should be. That's not justice. It's not about anything except what is true as far as what can be proven in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. So the questions that will be asked and explored that have already been asked and explored in in this trial will continue to be uh, are, was it actually the weight of Chauvin's knee that killed George Floyd? Or do the autopsy reports point to something else? That's not to say whether or not what he did was right. I'm just saying that's the question that's going to have to be asked when you're talking about convicting a person of murder. Did Chauvin show intent or blatant disregard for Floyd's life? Was this a hold that the Minneapolis uh, Police Department had been trained uh, or had been training their police officers to use? Or was he using excessive force in order to inflict serious bodily harm or even kill him? And I understand if you're on the left, Maybe even hearing me asking those questions makes you angry, but these are the questions that will be explored in court and they should be like, just because we believe something is wrong or just because something may be objectively wrong doesn't mean that the person is guilty of the crime that he's being charged with. Chelsea Handler, the comedian tweeted that we shouldn't even have a trial for him because we have a video. Oh my gosh. This is what happens when someone has become successful in one area, and for that reason, they erroneously think that that gives them the authority to speak into other areas. It's like uh, an appeal to authority fallacy that they embody uh, themselves, and it just goes to show how little education or critical thought is required to make it as a comedian. I'm not saying that all comedians are dumb. I'm not even saying that Chelsea Handler is dumb. This is just a very dumb, short-sighted statement. We want non-politicized due process for every single person that commits a crime in this country. If we allow politics or popular opinion or even video footage, gosh, in the in the day of deep fakes, to take away someone's right to a fair trial, you are looking at fascism and or communism at complete and total dictatorial control of the populace by those in charge. And you think that's not also going to negatively affect people of color, many of whom have ancestors 
uh, who just a few generations back experienced the partial biased application of the law because of their skin color? What a terrible take. Due process is good. We do not have anything close to a perfect justice system in this country, but our Bill of Rights, uh, specifically the due process clauses in the 5th and the 14th Amendment, afford us as Americans so much more than most of the world could ever dream of. Here's what the 5th Amendment says. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment of indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service, in time of war, public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now, well, I won't even get into that. There's there's uh, a lot that people say, and I think rightly, and critique that that's actually not being applied truly and completely and fairly in this country. But that is a right that we are supposed to have recognized that is in the Bill of Rights. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So we have a right as Americans. And while these rights are not always, like I said, recognized as thoroughly and fairly as they should be, we have to be able to recognize that even those that we see as guilty, maybe even especially those that we in the public at large sees as guilty, even people we don't like are entitled to these rights. And that is a good thing. Listen to how much God cares about the truth, impartiality, and the fair process of justice as he gives his commands to his people in Israel in Leviticus 19. Quote, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. So he says, and this flies in the face of what so many social justice advocates say that they want. He said that we're not supposed to show preferential treatment in court to the poor, and we're not supposed to show preferential treatment in court to the great. Those that society sees as the oppressed or the oppressor. He says in court, you do not show partiality to either of these parties based on that. Um, or at all, but specifically based on their poverty or their wealth or their prominence or their insignificance. He says, you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So God hates slander. He hates a false witness. He hates false narratives. He hates false accusations and he hates partiality. Exodus 23, one through three, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So God repeats again, 
You can't be partial even to the poor man, even to the weak man, even to the man that doesn't seem to have as much backing or significance as uh, maybe the guy on the other side. You can't show partiality to him. God says this has to be an honest and a fair and a thorough impartial process to meet what his standard of justice actually is. The idea of due process was God's idea who is the creator of justice. God gives rights to both the accused and the accuser. That's what we see in his law giving to Israel. Uh, And while we are not ancient Israel, I'm not saying that we are, I'm not trying to argue that we are or should pretend that we are, it is important for us to understand where due process comes from and why it is so important. So when Micah 6, 8, as Christians, tells us to seek justice, to love mercy, uh, that word justice is not translated to mean fighting for whatever social justice causes uh, we want, however we want, and showing partiality in some groups in um, in exchange for, uh, you know, a different kind of partiality against another group. It's about taking, or it's about God's righteous justice, which is always rooted, Scripture tells us, in impartiality and in truth. There is um, a, a a priest, I guess he's a, a priest, his name is David uh, Inkzowskis uh, on, um, on Twitter. He tweeted, Jesus Christ and Derek Chauvin are on trial this week. If the justice system lets Derek Chauvin walk free, then we will have chosen Barabbas over Christ once again. Now, I'm not even sure what the heck he means by this, but what he is saying is, you know, who cares about the presumption of innocence, which Americans are supposed to be able to enjoy according to uh, our Bill of Rights? Who cares about due process? Who cares what about what the arguments are, what the evidence is? Who cares about the actual impartial justice that people should be entitled to and that God actually uh, desires, as we see in Scripture, And uh, let us say that if Derek Chauvin walks free, we are once again, I guess, crucifying Jesus. Like there's just no theological or logical backing to a tweet like this. Like that is not the definition of God's impartial and righteous justice. Uh, The fact that Derek Chauvin has the right to a defense, just like everyone else, is good. That is a system that we very much want to keep in place in the United States uh, if we don't want to be like every other brutal dictatorship that's ever existed. This is important for people of every color, for every socioeconomic status, for every uh, for every kind of background, for every place of prominence. It is important that everyone is entitled to this fair process. According to NBC, here are the charges, uh, the prosecution led by State Attorney General Keith Ellison, um, who, by the way, is every bit a left-wing political activist, uh, are bringing forth. This is uh, NBC. Quote, Chauvin faces second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter charges in Floyd's death. Second-degree murder carries the heftiest potential penalty. If convicted on that charge, he could face up to 40 years in prison. That requires the highest burden of proof, though. They're going to have to prove that Chauvin caused Floyd's death while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense. The lesser charge of third-degree murder carries a penalty of up to 25 years 
Um, the judge who is overseeing the trial granted prosecutors request to reinstate the charge um, this month. He originally said that the circumstances just don't merit it, that this is not going to hold up because it requires proof that the person charged uh, committed an act imminently dangerous to others, meaning more than one person, but he actually allowed it to be reinstated. Uh, reinstated. The final charge Chauvin faces second degree manslaughter has the lowest burden of proof, carries a maximum penalty of 10 years. They would have to prove prosecutors would have to prove that Floyd's death was caused by Chauvin's negligence and created an unreasonable risk and consciously taking uh, taking chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. My amateur opinion is that this third one holds up the best second degree manslaughter. But of course, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot that's going into this. Um, so it's hard to say what's going to happen and no one can truly predict the outcome of it. According to Fox, the defense is expected to argue that Floyd uh, was not killed on Memorial Day by Chauvin's knee, but rather by the drugs he ingested while resisting arrest and underlying health conditions, including high blood pressure and heart disease. According to KARE 11 News, handwritten notes of a law enforcement interview with Dr. Andrew Baker, the Hennepin County medical examiner, say Floyd had um, a lot of fentanyl in his system. If we were, uh, he said, if he were found dead at home alone and no other apparent causes, this could be acceptable to call an OD. Deaths have been certified with levels of uh, a lot less than this. That is the level of fentanyl that he had in his body, this medical examiner said, is a fatal level of fentanyl under normal circumstances. But he does go on to say, I am not saying that this killed him. So he's stating the facts of what was in his body, but he can't say that that's actually what killed him. But that's what the defense attorneys are probably going to say. Uh, they will, they've signaled that, that they're going to argue that Floyd died from the drugs and pre-existing health conditions. Also, according to Fox, the autopsy conducted by the Hennepin County Medical Examiner actually did determine that Floyd's cause of death was a cardiopulmonary arrest complicating law enforcement uh, subdual restraint and neck compression. It was ruled a homicide. Floyd's family later hired private doctors to conduct an independent autopsy, which listed the cause of death as mechanical asphyxia and the manner of death as homicide. So the defense is going to say, look, there's no way to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the neck compression is what killed him. He had fatal levels of fentanyl in his system. People have reportedly been killed by less. He also apparently, according to the medical examiner, has a very serious heart condition. Uh, beyond that, the defense is probably going to say that there was no intent there. They're going to point to the fact that apparently, reportedly, uh, this was a hold that the Minneapolis police force had been trained to use and there's no way that he can actually be justly convicted of murder. According, uh, according to Insider, the Minneapolis Police Department trained its officers to use the knack restraint that led to George Floyd's killing, according to uh, court documents. And so that might look bad for the police force, but that actually helps Derek Chauvin's case. He could just say, I was doing what I was trained to do. There was obviously no intent to murder. There was no malice behind it, um, whatever. So that is probably what the defense is expected to say. I am not saying that. Some people are going to listen to this and think that I am, you know, saying that the defense is my argument too. I'm just saying that's probably what his defense is going to say. 
They've got a case. Wherever you land on this, both sides have their case to make. Here's what NBC tells us about the jury. The jury is made up of nine women and six men. Nine of the jurors identify as white, four as black, and two of mixed race. They range in ages from 20s uh, to the 60s. Having an impartial jury whose anonymity is protected is crucial to the fairness of these trials. And there was a push by some on the left to release the information, for example, of jurors in the Breonna Taylor case after that did not go the the direction that they wanted, uh, including her family. They were pushing for this information and they actually did, I think, get the transcripts, um, but they didn't get, thankfully, the names and the information of the people on the jury. If that is the new precedent that we set, then again, we will no longer have fair trials for anyone of any race on either side of the aisle of any socioeconomic background. That spells trouble for everyone. That is not something that we want. So when we say that we want justice to be served here, which I think that we all should, that means that we want a fair trial with an objective judge, an impartial jury, where both sides bring their best arguments forward, the evidence is weighed and a decision is reached that is not influenced by the media, by public opinion or politics. That's what it will mean for justice to be served. The fact is we're in a tough situation with all of this. If Chauvin is not convicted of the highest charge, that we will be hearing endlessly that it's because the system is racist. There will be riots. There will be looting. There will probably be murder. There will be property destruction. It will not matter how objective or fair the process is if BLM and Democrats and left-wing activists do not get what they want here, which I believe is the highest possible murder charge, no matter what can actually be proven in court. They will use this as a way to relaunch the anarchy that many of them have been waging for nearly a year now and redouble their efforts to convince the country that America is pervasively and systemically racist and that we need to defund the police. First of all, I know this is controversial to say, but it's just true. It needs to be said that we still have no evidence whatsoever that what Derek Chauvin did, as awful as it may be, was motivated by race or had anything to do with race whatsoever. A black Minneapolis police officer a few years ago shot and killed a white woman who had just called 911. And as she was walking up to his car, totally unarmed, just this blonde lady in pink pajamas, he shot her point blank and killed her. He only got 12 and a half years in prison. And no one talks about uh, systemic injustice or race when it comes to that case or in the case of Tony Tempa or Daniel Shaver, if you even know who their names, what they're, who they are, and if you even know those names or any of the white people who are killed by the police, because it's called narrative. It's called what uh, the media use or it's what the media use to determine whether or not a victim is worth talking about and a crime is worth discussing. That's called partiality. And God is very clear that he hates it. So we as Christians should too. Now we need to look at the facts around police brutality, because this is going to be a conversation, like I like I said, that is going to uh, be had once again in the next few weeks. And it's a good conversation to have, but we need to know 
what the facts actually are. Now, before we get into that, I do have to tell you guys about a sponsor that I love. That is ABC Life in the Womb. It is a fun and educational alphabet books, uh, alphabet book for kids to learn how babies grow and develop in their mother's womb. Um, I have the book. It's actually not here with me because we read it all the time. I love it. Um, it goes through the whole alphabet and it gives you different explanations of how babies are growing in the womb. And I think it's just such a good and cute and fun educational tool for kids to understand that life in the womb has value, that that is a human in there. It's not just a clump of cells and that God is making that child, made that child fearfully and wonderfully and purposefully. How important is it for kids to understand that at a really young age and to even know the science of gestation? I think that's really important. And so I love this book. It's called ABC Life in the Womb. If you buy this book, you uh, by going to littlelifestages.com, uh, you can uh, be glad to know that 40% of all proceeds go to pro-life pregnancy centers across the U.S. So you're truly doing good in more ways than one. So check out this book, ABC Life in the Womb at littlelifestages.com. That's ABC Life in the Womb at littlelifestages.com. So let's let's refresh our memories on some of these statistics when it comes to police uh when it comes to police shootings and police brutality. This is not to take away what uh from what happened to George Floyd because obviously that's important, but I want us to be prepared and I want us to know what the truth is um when this trial really goes one way or another. We have to make sure that we are knowledgeable about the facts. According to the Washington Post database on police shootings, uh 1021 people were shot and killed by the police last year. Now, that doesn't include other types of killing of civilians, and we'll talk about that too. The Washington Post database is only about um, police shootings in particular. So 1,021 fatal police shootings of civilians, only a few more than 2019, actually, which is just interesting because there was a big uptick in violent crime in 2020. Um, 457 of these were white, uh, 241 were black. So about 45% white, about 27% black. Now of those, most were armed. Most were armed. Uh, there were a total of only about 50 or not about, there were only 55 unarmed people shot and killed by the police last year. So 95% of fatal police shootings last year involved civilians who were armed. That doesn't mean that the cases in which people were unarmed don't matter, that their lives don't matter. We shouldn't look into those because we absolutely should. But these are just the facts. These are just the the, the statistics um, about police shootings. Um, but by the way, unarmed doesn't actually necessarily mean not dangerous. They could have been reaching for the officer's weapon and still be considered unarmed. They could have been a threat in some way to someone else. Unarmed doesn't always mean that the officer is not justified in using fatal force, though, of course, sometimes it does mean exactly that. All of these cases have to be looked into. It depends entirely on the circumstance and what actually happened. So 55 unarmed people shot and killed by the police last year. We don't know all the circumstances and whether or not the action by the police was in any way justified. Of those who were unarmed, 24 were white, 18 were black. So 1.7% of fatal police shootings last year were of unarmed black men. If you look at the database, which starts in 2015, year over year, these numbers are comparable. They're about the same 
Now, it is true that white people make up about 70% of the population. Black Americans make up about 12 to 13% of the population. So the fact that 27% of fatal police shootings involve a black person, unarmed or not, uh, is disproportionate. So you will hear and you will read uh, that black people are much more likely to be killed by the police than white people because there is a higher percentage of total black people um, killed or there's a higher percentage of black people killed by the police and the percentage of total white people killed by the police based on population size. The website Mapping Police Violence says this, 36% of unarmed people killed by the police uh, were black in 2015, despite black people making up only 13% of the population. That is true. But the reality is, according to FBI data, and I know this is a controversial thing to say, I'm not justifying, again, anything. But this is the context that we have to know when we're having these conversations. The reality is, according to FBI data, that Black Americans, despite only making up 12 to 13 percent of the population, get a lot of police attention because there is a disproportionate number of violent crimes committed in these inner city communities. In 2018, Black Americans committed about 40 percent of all homicides, while again making up only 12 to 13 percent of the population. A 2012 to 2015 report by the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that white Americans commit about 44 percent of all violent crime, black Americans about uh, 23 percent of all violent crimes, again, making up about 12 to 13 percent of the population. So the likely reason black Americans are more likely to have these kind of fatal encounters with the police is because they have more interactions with the police uh, than other races, than other kinds of demographics because reportedly of the crimes that are being committed in these communities. And I just want to say again, this is not a justification of anything. But if we're looking at, if we're asking the questions honestly, which we should be, you know, why why is this happening? Why is there this disproportionate number? Uh, why are we hearing uh, about these stories? We have to look at the entire picture. There are absolutely incidents that we know of, like, uh, in my opinion, the one of Elijah McLean, in which a young black man was, again, in my opinion, clearly abused and killed completely unjustifiably. So I'm not saying that any of these statistics mean that there's never a case of a white police officer unjustly killing a black man. Of course that happens. Of course that happens. Or uh, another race of a police officer killing another race of civilian of of a civilian unjustifiably. Of course that happens. Again, just looking at the entire picture. And uh, that was a case in Elijah McClain that didn't involve uh, it didn't involve a gun. Mapping police violence looks at uh, all deaths of civilians by the hands of the police, not just using a gun. Uh, according to that website in 2019, 1098 people killed uh, were killed in all ways. According to this site by the police, 114 were unarmed. Of those, according to the site, 48 were white, 28 were black. Again, we don't know anything about those killings, what the circumstance was. But let's put those numbers, those numbers into context. And Mapping Police Violence, by the way, is a, an activist organization against what they call police uh, police violence. Um, 
and I'm not saying that their description of police violence is wrong, but that's just how they describe it. So according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, there were over 50 million interactions between the public and the police in 2015, the most recent year that there is data for that I could find. That number has ranged over the years, but every year, tens of millions of people interact with the police. So if we take the estimate of 50 million police interactions in 2020, and according to the Washington Post, 1,021 fatal police shootings in 2020, you're looking at about point zero zero two percent of all interactions between the police and the public ended a fatal shooting by a police officer um and if we're talking about killed by any fatal force and we go to mapping police violence data that's 28 unarmed black people killed by the police in 2019 either justifiably or not either by a white officer or not that's point zero 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 five six percent of all police interactions and Every single one of those instances should be looked into. We can talk about every single one of them to see whether or not it was justified, to see whether or not there was a racial bias there or racial motivation there. But we have to be able to look at the details of this and to look at what is actually going on uh, before we simply believe what the media tells us, that this is happening on a daily basis or that this characterizes all police officers or that um, this justifies defunding the police or getting rid of the police as we see fit. I don't think the numbers support that kind of argument. The fact of the matter is, when we're looking at what is victimizing Black communities, um, it doesn't seem to be, according to the data, predominantly police officers. The homicide rate among Black people is completely disproportionate to their population size. There are murders, mass murders, nearly every weekend in cities like Chicago that are never reported on because it doesn't perpetuate a narrative. These are conveniently categorized as local crime stories. But the tragedies that have what progressives consider a politically useful racial makeup, even though they're more rare, have to become national news. Roland Fryer, he is an economic professor at Harvard University. He conducted a thorough study in July 2016 uh, looking at the existence of racial bias in the police force, specifically racial shootings. According to the New York Times, Mr. Fryer is the youngest African-American to receive tenure at Harvard and the first to join a John to win a John Bates Clark medal um, that is given to economists under the age of 40. He conducted this study thinking that he was going to find racism, proven racism in the police force when it comes to who police officers decide to uh, decide to shoot. But he actually he that's not what he found. Um, he actually found that in such situations, officers in Houston in particular is one city that he looked at were about 20 percent less likely to shoot if suspects were black. The estimate was not precise and firmer conclusions would require more data. But in various models, controlling for different factors and using different situations of uh, different definitions of 10 situations, Mr. Fryer found that blacks were either less likely to be shot or there was no difference between blacks and whites. The New York Times says a 2019 peer-reviewed study titled Officer Characteristics and Racial Disparities in Fatal Officer-Involved Shootings published a scientific journal aimed to examine racial bias in police 
shootings found that black cops are more likely to shoot black civilians and Hispanic cops are more likely to shoot Hispanic civilians and so on. Here's what the study found. As the proportion of violent crime committed by black civilians increased, a person fatally shot was more likely to be black. As the proportion of violent crime committed by Hispanic civilians increased, a person fatally shot was more likely to be Hispanic. Conversely, as white crime rates increased, a person fatally shot was less likely to be black or Hispanic. We did not find evidence for anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparity in police use of force across all shootings, and if anything, found anti-white disparities when controlling for race-specific crime. Now, Roland Fryer did find, according to his study, that he believes that the evidence shows that when it comes to non-fatal confrontations, like police officers just roughing up suspects or perpetrators, that uh, the victims of that kind of brutality and abuse and harassment are more likely to be black and brown than they are white. And I think that's important for us to know that brutality where it does exist is not always going to end in a fatal confrontation. It can also mean a police officer using his power in a way that is unjust that doesn't end in some kind of fatal conclusion. And we should absolutely care about that, especially if we see some kind of racial bias uh, behind it. But the fact of the matter is, is that most people do not know these facts. Like most people don't know these studies. Most people don't know these percentages Most people just don't know the data. And there was a really interesting report by Skeptic Research asking how informed are Americans when it comes to race and policing. It was conducted among 980 adult Americans. That's a pretty small sample size. First asked them to identify their political orientation, then asked them how many unarmed black men were killed by police in 2019 and what percentage of People killed by police in 2019 were black. And so that first question, asking how many unarmed black men were killed by the police in 2019, if you were very liberal, the highest percent, I have to hold my computer up close because I can't see, uh, 31%, uh, if you were very liberal, that's the highest percentage, believe that it's over, that it's about 1,000, that it's about 1,000 unarmed black men killed by the police in 2019. If you identify as liberal, you believed uh, about 40% believed that it's about 100 unarmed black men that were killed by the police. If you're moderate, about 40% believe that. Um, if you identify as conservative, you are most likely to say that it was about 10 unarmed black men killed by the police. And if you're very conservative, you are also most likely to say that it was 10 unarmed black men killed by the police. The reality is, is that it was 13 unarmed black men who were fatally shot by the police in 2019. And according to Mapping Police of Violence, 27 unarmed black men were killed by police by any means in 2019. So when it comes to that, a large portion of conservatives are actually more informed on what the data actually is. Whereas if you're a liberal, you are much more likely to overestimate the number. And that is a direct product of what they're watching in the news. And it's interesting because we are constantly hearing that conservatives are the ones who are misinformed on this subject When in reality, at least according to this study, a lot of conservatives have a better handle on what the facts actually are uh, when it comes to police brutality, in particular against black people, than liberals do. Now, uh, the second question that was asked uh, was uh, what percentage of people killed by police in 2019 
were black. If you're very liberal, you were likely to say about 60%. If you were liberal or just, yeah, if you identified as just liberal, about 56%. If you were moderate, you believed that it was about 45%. If you're conservative, you believe that it was about 37%. If you're very conservative, interestingly, you actually believe that it was about 44%. The real number is about 26.7% of victims of police shootings uh, between 2015 and 2020 uh, were black. And so actually everyone overestimated in this study what the percentage was. But if you're very liberal or liberal, you're getting that wrong by 30 plus percentage points, probably based on what you are hearing and what you are reading. It's very unlikely for a liberal who wants to confirm the narrative that they already have to actually go in and look at the details of this. And I'm sure that happens in other issues on the other side as well. But when it comes to this, it seems, at least according to the study, that conservatives have a little better grasp on what's uh, on what's going on. Jason Riley, who happens to also be black, he talks about these issues a lot of the Wall Street Journal talks. Uh, he 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 writes about this in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he says, and this is going to sound going to sound harsh. He says, so as long as black Americans are committing more than half of all murders and robberies while making up only 13% of the population, and so long as almost all of their victims are their neighbors, these communities will draw the lion's share of police attention. Defunding the police or making it easier to prosecute officers will only result in more lives lost in those neighborhoods that need protecting. He talks about how the narrative is being pushed without the facts, without context. It's actually going to hurt these minority communities. And we have examples of that. In Minneapolis, where George Floyd died, the city shifted $8 million away from the police force last year. According to Fox News, the police department says it only has 638 officers available to work, roughly 200 fewer than usual. Three city council members have actually proposed replacing the entire police department with the public safety department. That would include law enforcement and other services. Yes, for Minneapolis, a coalition of local community groups is collecting signatures to try to push the replacement of the police department in Minneapolis. And listen to this. The Star Tribune reported the Yes for Minneapolis committee is being fueled by a half million dollar grant from the Washington, D.C. based group Open Society Policy Center linked to billionaire George Soros. Of course, he is also behind all of the pro-crime so-called social justice district attorneys or many of them in the country. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's just true. You link it back to see like who funded their campaigns, open society in many cases. Um, the article goes on to say Minneapolis on Friday backtracked on its original push to defund the city's police department in the wake of George Floyd's police custody death after residents begged the city to hire more officers, citing longer response times and increased violent crime. 81 people have been killed year to date as of December 30th, 2020, an increase of 72% from the same time in 2019, police department statistics show. The city council on Friday voted unanimously to approve, so this is a more recent change, to approve $6.4 million in additional funding that police had requested. And part of these complaints are happening in Minneapolis uh, because there is or there has been an autonomous zone, apparently in honor of George Floyd in Minneapolis, where people are being assaulted and murdered. 
People are saying the situation at the memorial, from what I understand, is that it's kind of volatile. This is Kim Griffin, a Minneapolis resident. People that want to go and support uh, don't uh, don't feel a sense of inclusion. There is more like a militant type atmosphere over there in a sense of fear. Her nephew, Imez Wright, was gunned down within the zone over the weekend. An activist actually uh, blocked the cops from responding. Uh, The people who are guarding the zone have refused to reopen the area unless the city meets their list of 24 demands. Last year alone, there were 19 non-fatal shootings in this George Floyd autonomous zone where police are, are apparently not allowed, 14 of which occurred between May 1st and August 31st. And so this is really not being reported on Uh, quite as much. This is supposed to be a part of the revolution, pushing back against the police. But the fact of the matter is, is that people are dying. Like people are dying because of this violence is flourishing there. And that's exactly what Jason Riley talks about in the article that I just quoted from. But actually, when you take away the police, what you see is very often an uptick of crime that disproportionately affects black and brown communities. Uh, The Daily Wire reported on five different uh, five different cities in the last year that have responded to the George Floyd incident by taking funding away from the police. Portland, New York City, Austin, Seattle, Los Angeles. And what they saw in, in what was reported in each of those cities that after they shifted funds away from the police bureau, they saw upticks in crime. Uh, for example, in Portland, Uh, Though year-to-date shootings had risen 10.8% in May, the months of June, July, August, and September witnessed 96.8%, 186.1%, 195.1%, and 243.8% hikes, respectively, when uh, you were talking about shootings in Portland, the same kind of story in New York City, the same kind of story in Austin, in Seattle, in Los Angeles. I've heard many other people from cities across the country where the police force has been uh, weakened, either significantly or just in small ways that has seen a rise in violent crime. And there was already going to be a rise of violent crime because of the lockdowns and economic instability. So this only added insult to injury. And according to Newsweek, there is a Gallup poll that actually shows that 81% of Black Americans do not want less police presence despite protests. Some actually want more cops. Now, The study does say and quotes black Americans uh, saying that, look, we want fairness. We still feel like they're not treating us fairly. We still feel like we're being over policed, maybe some in some cases, or we feel like this isn't really um, how we are being policed isn't right. But we don't want less police because we don't want more crime. And so the activists that are pushing for defunding the police don't seem to actually be representing most black Americans who um, are are not a part of this whole defund the police movement. There's an article in uh, by Stephen Malenga in City Journal that also talks about this. He talks about how when New York reformed their po- their policing under Rudy Giuliani, and I understand that's still controversial, but crime went down and the quality of life in the city went way up. And then over the past 10 years, we've kind of seen through social justice activism, a lot of cities start to take a different approach in the hopes that crime will stay down um, even as they weaken their police forces. And that's unfortunately not what has happened. So 
We have no indication at all that defunding the police and allocating those resources to, quote, community measures will do anything to uh, decrease the crime. Based on the data that we have, it doesn't seem like that's the answer. No matter what happens with the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, there are some reforms that absolutely can be put in place that we've talked about before. No more public unions. I think public unions being funded by our taxpayer dollars are totally unethical. Teachers unions, police unions so often shield bad teachers and bad police officers from being fired. That's a problem. I think we can invest in better training, maybe higher qualifications in some cases for police officers. Maybe we can supplement police officers with social workers, not replace them. Um, We can offer different kinds of trainings and programs to the youth in these areas that seem to be having a disproportionate number of interactions with the police, but it does not seem from what we know and from history that defunding the police or shrinking the police is actually going to do anything except for cause and exacerbate current problems. Now, as a conservative, I don't want the police to have too much power. I don't want them to be above the law. I don't want them to be abusing civilians in any way. So I am all for reforms. I am all for having these conversations, but we have to have them rooted in truth. And, and the problem is, is that we can't actually have these honest conversations if we are racializing that which we do not know is actually racialized. Uh, that is the danger of viewing the world only through the lens of race, seeing every instance in which a black person is involved uh, as racialized in some way and not just racialized, but ultimately about white supremacy. It causes us to ignore problems and therefore look past solutions because we are focused on the wrong narrative. So no one wants to talk about the problems with the teachers and the police unions. No one wants to talk about how Planned Parenthood um, sets up shop in every predominantly black and brown community. And that in New York City, year after year, uh, according to the New York City Health Department, there are more black babies that are aborted than born. No one wants to talk about those things because that is outside of the myopic and concrete narrative that whiteness and white supremacy and white police officers are always the main problem. And the problem with that also is that there's never any concrete solution or viable solution given to that supposed problem. So when we get down to the nitty gritty and we look at what's actually plaguing these communities and we look at a lot of the problems and what the data shows, no one wants to have those conversations because people are so much more loyal to their narrative than they are actually doing anything to help these people. So no one wants to talk about the kinds of murders that happen in the black community that victimize black children every day. No one wants to talk about black on Asian crime or black on Jewish crime that we know is prevalent and why unless someone can find a way to make it about whiteness and white supremacy, we just we don't we don't want to focus on it. I'm not saying no one's talking about those things, but we're not having these big national conversations about them. We're only having the national conversations about the instances in which police kill an unarmed uh, an unarmed black person, which we can have a conversation about that. But we don't have a national conversation when it's an unarmed white wo- woman who gets killed and the black police officer only gets 12 and a half years in prison. Because unless something is white, bad, black, brown, good, the media and many left-wing activists throw it out 
because it's just not useful. And therefore, we end up missing out on discussions that could actually help and we should want to help. That is why the truth matters, because we want to help, because we care about people, because we want to talk about actual solutions. But when we're so wedded to a narrative and we are so unwilling to actually examine any problems, any causes, or any potential solutions that don't match that narrative, then we don't end up helping anyone but ourselves. Because we're just latching on to that which is popular rather than looking into that which is true. And I think that's a huge problem. All right. I think tomorrow we are going to take a break from the news unless something is absolutely pressing and we're going to talk um, about about some theology. But I hope this kind of gave you a refresher, some numbers that we've talked about before, and also gave you a lot of context um, for what's happening in this Derek Chauvin trial. I will keep you updated on that. All right. See you guys tomorrow. 